Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is a Monday, and that means we have a new episode for you. I'm Andy Alexander, and here with me today is... Dave McConaughey. You know, it might be a new episode, but what we're talking about today is really ancient history. I had the great pleasure of speaking with Nathaniel Morehouse last year, and due to the pandemic and scheduling, it simply didn't come out, and now we get to finally share it with you. And I'm fortunate to be in a position where I get to talk to people about things that are entirely outside of my own area. And let me tell you, as a modern Americanist, speaking to someone about the fourth century Christian world of the Mediterranean and martyr shrines is about as far out as you can go. So one of the things that I think is really important for us to take away from these kind of interdisciplinary conversations and cross subfield conversations is that issues of power and identity and the contestations over space and place, these are uh, disciplinary defining conversations. And so in religious studies, one of the great things is that it doesn't matter exactly what your subdiscipline or specialty is. You can have an opportunity to really think about the ways in which power and identity can configure religious lives and have effects that ripple through the ages from the past to the present. Let's take a listen. Hello and welcome. My name is David McConaughey, and today it's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Nathaniel Morehouse who teaches at John Carroll University and Lakeland Community College in Ohio. He's the author of Death's Dominion, Power, Identity, and Memory at the 4th Century Martyr Shrine, published by Equinox Press in 2016. Dr. Morehouse, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm hoping that you'll be able to share with our listeners today some things that will really help them understand what the 4th century was like for Christians that may have been traveling in the Mediterranean world, who the leaders were, why they were going to different sites, the importance of some of these different sites, and just to try to understand the landscape of kind of spatial networks of places that really mattered to them and trying to understand why those places mattered to them. When you think about the fourth century, what's one of the first things that you tell your students that they really need to understand about that world? What's the major context point that you can offer them? So one of the first things that I tell students about the fourth century or any time after Constantine is that we like to imagine that it had some sort of uh, consistency, that there was the Council of Nicaea and everybody agreed about what Christianity was. And Constantine you know, furthered this understanding of one particular Catholic form of Christianity. When it turns out, uh, Christians in the fourth century were uh, tremendously divided about what it meant to be Christian and how one went about worshiping Christ and how one um, responded to people who had uh, lapsed under previous uh, persecutions. Um, I also have to point out that the persecutions weren't necessarily as draconian as we frequently imagine that they were. This is this is the the kind of myth that that Christians were placed in the Colosseum with lions. Exactly. Yes, that there were jackbooted thugs barging down the doors or breaking down the doors of Christians in their homes, and they were hiding in the catacombs because they were being rounded up and fed to lions. 
that that simply didn't happen. So if that's not what happened, what the diversity that was there, this is maybe from a modern perspective, more denominationalism. Is that the kind of way that we might think of it? I think that would work. Um, but it wasn't necessarily denominationalism in you know a modern American sense, because mm. there was with the, you know, with the blessing of Constantine, there was a tremendous amount of very real political power to be had if you were one of the favored groups. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Council of Nicaea, one of the things that they were attempting to do was to um, deal with what's referred to as the Arian heresy, that there were the Arians who uh, believed that Jesus wasn't fully God and um, the Nicene Christians who believed, or what would become known as Nicene Christians, who believed that Jesus was fully God and if you're familiar with the Nicene Creed that many Christians recite every week, you have you know statements like "True God, True God, begotten, not made, of being one substance with the Father," etc. But there was also political divisions and who would receive the funding and the imperial support. And while there were many different groups in the fourth century, the Arians and the Nicaeans were certainly uh, two of the biggest contenders that would. That would continue through the entirety of the 4th century into the 5th century. And so many of the things that I talk about in my book deal with the ways in which important individuals, men uh, almost exclusively, dealt with uh, navigating these political as well as religious differences. Because to be honest, you couldn't really differentiate the two in the 4th century. The idea that that those are are two separate things is uh, the modern invention, right? So if yes, they were intimately connected, that means that the selection of a site for a new a church or a new shrine that was not just a religious decision; it was also deeply political as well. Absolutely, shrines were typically placed, at least the martyr shrines that I'm talking about, placed or related to the graves of the individual. However. Um, if you didn't necessarily know where martyrs were buried, and uh, I think the most famous example of this is Peter and Paul in Rome, there's a you know a significant amount of debate as to where they were buried or if they were moved or where they ended up. Were they together? Were they apart? Etc. So if you could convince people that you had the location and that you were the one who interceded on behalf of the martyr in the same way that the martyr would intercede on your behalf with God, then you had tremendous power that your rivals would not have. The figures of the deceased martyr were really symbolic capital, an intense measure of the power that someone could claim if they could establish a shrine for a particular person and have it be the shrine that everyone needed to go to. Is that that what I'm hearing? I think that sounds uh, yeah perfectly put. And there were a couple of different ways in which this played out. Uh, for instance, the bishops of Rome, often referred to as the popes, closely guarded their martyr relics. People had to come to Rome, and Rome was uh, important because, especially Peter and Paul, but of other relics as well. Whereas other bishops freely shared their relics. And uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with the relic trade, where bishops would send pieces of corpses to other bishops or friends, and they would be interred in their churches as a way of gaining notoriety. If you had a relic, then you could be a pilgrimage location. So Ambrose of Milan shared widely 
and then people would put his name in their church as the individual who had shared with them. So he gained uh, notoriety and importance for Milan through sharing in almost exactly the same way that Rome did by not sharing. So it works in both directions. If you're giving, then you're potentially gaining power. And if you're holding the cherished items, you're also accumulating power. Exactly. Although we don't necessarily have uh, precise details in every instance, um, certainly an individual by the name of Paulinus of Nola talked about um, with a friend of his, Severus, his Severus is having received relics from Milan. Um, and he doesn't say exactly what that is. In general, uh, we have more instances of ashes being shared. Disturbing a body as a body was deeply taboo for a long time in, in the Roman world. And really this Christian's uh, association with corpses uh, was deeply disturbing to a number of Romans. Um, and they, they write about how, how grotesque they found this practice. And this changes over the, you know, in the later fourth century, you start to see more instances of martyrs being moved. And then as we were discussing right now, their relics being shared. Um, but we have a number of times where uh, it could have just been a bit of ash from a cremated martyr, or likewise, it could be a finger bone or a tooth. In many museums, the uh, Cleveland Museum of Art here has a number of of these you know, bits and pieces. And I know the Metropolitan Museum in New York has Mary Magdalene's tooth on display in a reliquary. What I'm hearing about the treatment of the bodies brings to mind the history of cities that I've heard before, that one of the major elements of city design in early periods was about the location of the cemeteries, about the location of the church, about the location of the shrine, and where in relation to those things the boundary of city walls were. Am I remembering correctly that in this era, the cemeteries were pushed to the margins of the towns outside of kind of the living areas of the communities? During the fourth century, this starts to change. And this is one of the things that I find uh, tremendously interesting uh, because in general, in let's say non-Jewish, non-Christian Gentile Roman practice, uh, bodies were forbidden from being buried in, inside. The Romans had very strict laws about when you could, how long you could have a body inside the walls of the town, and it had to be removed. And uh, Julian, frequently known as the apostate, even legislated that they had to be removed only at night. Uh, I believe that the Christians were having large ceremonial processions outside of the city, and Julian said, you can't do that. You can only do it at night because it brings bad luck if we see even see a corpse. So, yes, the, at the time, um, all burials took place outside of the city. It's a bit of a misnomer to refer to them as a cemetery because they weren't organized in the way that we think of it. Although the term comiterium is, actually comes from dormitory, and so it's more or less a Christian term to talk about the places where bodies are sleeping side by side that also develops in the 4th century. As things progress, however people wanted to be buried near the relics of the martyrs because they were believed to be sacred locations, strong in the Holy Spirit, if you would. So you start seeing uh, what's referred to as ad sanctos burial, that is to say burial near the saints, 
as an important way of maintaining one's prominence or ensuring a better afterlife. And there's an interesting exchange of letters between Paulinus of Nola, who I mentioned before, and Augustine about whether or not this is actually beneficial. And Augustine's response is, it doesn't really do anything, but if it helps people remember the individual who's buried near the church or near the saint, then that might help them in the afterlife. But the physicality isn't as important. Um, I think Augustine was perhaps not as fond of it as many others were because it was certainly a widespread practice in, in the late 4th century. Are those debates occurring across the Mediterranean at that time, or are they localized? What's the geography of the discourse about how Christianity should treat the dead at that period? So it was certainly important in and around Rome. Um, and, and Rome is perhaps the, they were on the vanguard of the treatment of the important dead. This may have stemmed from the Roman practice of having memorial meals for the dead. And so mm. some of the early, there's early graffiti about people going to what was believed to be the tomb of Peter and Paul and, you know, writing on their, on their tombs, essentially, I had this meal in your honor, you know, can you help me out? Uh, so that was a, a Roman practice, but of course they weren't disturbing the dead at all. And again, when the dead were disturbed, that was frequently, certainly by uh, the non-Christian, non-Jewish community as being um, abhorrent. Uh, the Jewish community would also have seen it as abhorrent. In Northern Africa, this plays out in a, a different way because there was a group of Christians in Northern Africa referred, who are known as the Donatists who claimed to be the descendants of the, the martyrs themselves. They were uh, persecuted by Nicene Christians after Nicene Christianity became dominant, and they identified with martyrdom in a way that was not universally appreciated by Nicene Christians in Northern Africa. Uh, again, I keep coming back to Augustine, in part because we have so much of his writing, but he had a real problem with Donatists and their celebration of local martyrs. And he even uh, refers to a group uh, that, honestly, I don't know if they existed, and I think there's no scholarly consensus if they existed, but he refers to them as the Circumcilians, who um, may have jumped off of cliffs in order to prove their martyrdom or become martyrs by suicide, or may have started mm -hmm. fights in order to lose the fight and consequently be a martyr. And Augustine uh, writes vigorously against these individuals. But in general, he was writing against the Donatists and their approval of local martyrs because that wasn't Catholic enough and Catholic as in universal. Interestingly enough, when he receives his own martyrs of import, uh, Stephen, he receives a relic from of Stephen, he all of a sudden promotes these more universal martyrs in a way that he downplayed uh, the local martyrs. I'm impressed that the dialogues that the Catholic Church or the the nascent Catholic Church in this period, uh, how similar they are to dialogues that are ongoing today. The Catholic Church continues to have debates about whether or not local shrines and local martyrs and local cults are appropriate. How far can they go? How popular can they be? And so 
the Catholic Church is is very wary, as we discussed earlier this year in a, in an episode about the cult of uh, Santa Muerte, for instance, and and the kind of localism embodied in um, Mexican and Latin American religious practices. And I'm hearing so very similar things from you about Augustine's ideas about what was happening in in the fourth century. Is this just a thousand years of the battle between the kind of universal emphasis of the church and the kind of local on the ground practice that we, that we're seeing. I have no way of arguing against that. It's, uh, you know, power and control are always important issues within any tradition. And when you have an institution as large as the Catholic church, um, that has as many, you know, facets as it does, there's always going to be, um, you know, concern about dogma and concern about appropriate ritual. And this is definitely something that was being fought out or fought about perhaps for the first time in the fourth century, but uh, has, has certainly continued. In recalling some of the pieces of your work that I've read, there was an issue that Protestants would bring up later in the universality of to whom was one's worship directed? Yeah. My understanding is that Augustine was addressing these very issues uh, in the city of God. Can you, can you speak to that? Definitely. And, and uh, I'm not sure I've written about Protestants being critical of this, but I certainly wrote about um, Christian groups again in the fourth century being critical of this. The Arians mm. uh, were quite critical of it. And uh, the Donatists, well, no, I'm sorry. The Donatists were, very in favor of uh, venerating the martyrs, but uh, there has been a uh, need to clarify it in the minds or, you know, write apologetic tracks about it in the minds of Christians who were venerating the martyrs. And uh, almost to a T, their response was, we're venerating the martyr and worshiping God. The martyr might help us worship God better, uh, but we are certainly not worshiping the martyr and if anything is done through the martyr, it's always God's power that does it. Right. We we build al- altars not to the martyrs, but to the God of the martyrs, although it is in the memory of the martyrs. It, it's such a it's such a fine line that that's being drawn there. I can understand how easy it would be for a local community and perhaps a person who was not reading Augustine, but was going to the shrine could mess with that distinction very, very uh, openly. Certainly. And it, especially when you remember that we're talking about a group of people who were very comfortable with polytheism, they were very comfortable with different gods having different localities, different sacred spots that you could go and visit and venerate the God there. Um, And I think perhaps that's one of the reasons that this was so um, became so popular within these newly converted Christians uh, that it didn't look that different. And then you would have people like Augustine saying, Oh, well, yes, we're doing this, but we're really worshiping this one God. And everybody would be at the, the Martyr Fest and the Martyr Festival. And these were very, very popular events where people would travel um, potentially great distances to venerate at the shrine on the Martyr's Feast Day that I sometimes refer to in my classes as uh, the fourth century equivalent of a rave. 
They were all night. Mm. There was music blaring, at least according to some of the detractors outside of the churches. Men and women were mingling and um, were known to have uh, intimate contact during the the nocturnal mingling. Um, Social barriers were broken down in a way that wouldn't have happened anywhere else. So these were, if not familiar uh, exactly, uh, a known quantity to new converts. It sounds like appropriation, but I'm guessing that there's a lot more going on under the surface that we today still struggle with all of the different kind of elements that go into it. You you mentioned that the people of the era would have been open to additional religious institutions beyond a single one, that they would have been aware of multiple kind of competing items, and that slotting these activities in alongside other competing shrines made them accessible in a way was for many of the people in the Mediterranean that we could be speaking about. Is this still an era of, of competition in that way of, of religious competition? Definitely competition between uh, Christian and non-Christian competition between different forms of Christianity. And I argue competition for power between different cities and locations. And Mm. if you read, um, some of the Cappadocian fathers and their criticism of place-based worship. Uh, that is to say, they they argued strenuously against traveling to the to the Holy Land. That there was no need to do that because Jesus could be worshipped anywhere. Um, they were very happy, conversely, telling people to come and worship their particular martyrs that they had shrines to. A lot of it had to do with, again power and authority and the way in which you could leverage what you had for that power and authority in a, in a rapidly changing world. I can imagine the, the, the argument you're, you're someone in the fourth century and you are a devout Christian and you say, I'm going to go to the Holy land. Well, that that's no small task. I can imagine that the argument coming from the local people that you might as well stay here because this is powerful. Just like that is powerful. That's fairly convincing in this era. It is convincing, and yet um, as the 4th century progresses and into the early 5th century, you see a a very quick rise in the number of people who make the pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Um, And in fact, you know, there's debate about um, whether or not it's appropriate for people. And I, I keep coming back to Paulinus of Nola, but... There is an interesting letter between Jerome and he about whether or not pilgrimage to the Holy Land is acceptable. Um, and and Paulinus is told it's not necessary for a man like yourself, a holy man. But interestingly enough, the same Jerome um, writes to a number of women and says, you should come, you should come uh, see the Holy Land. And there was a surprising number of wealthy uh, Roman women who were encouraged to and made the pilgrimage to the Holy Land. This is the first time that we've had a chance to bring up the gender element. You said at the beginning of the interview that so many of the major figures we're talking about, since we're talking about um, written works and church fathers, are men. But this is the first moment when women have really entered the discussion. Can you talk a little bit more about what things would have been like on the ground that that may explain how men and women might have interacted with these 
martyr shrines differently and how that kind of connects to the ability of rich Roman women to, to go from Rome to the Holy Land. Sure. And one of the things that I found really uh, quite fascinating about all of this is the number of times that women are discussed as being associated with the bones of martyrs. Um, in the lives of the popes, there's a number of instances where women, uh, there's a, a woman, Lucia um, or Lucina, there's, I go back and forth on whether or not it's the same woman or whether or not it's two different women um, or whether it's the same woman uh, over the course of a couple of hundred years or if it's in any case, I'm, she convinces a pope to move the bodies of Peter and Paul and um, one of them ends up on her own property. And there's been a, a decent amount of work recently demonstrating how gathering bones was um, predominantly a feminine uh, job or a female job. And so the once we have martyr, the martyr cult uh, developing, these women play a uh, disproportionate role in in the development of the martyr cult, or at least the um, acquisition of martyr relics. They then um, become you know, instrumental in this notion of pilgrimage. Um, and that's, I think, perhaps not too surprising because within the church by this point, women didn't have uh, the ability for leadership in, you know, within the church in the way that they might have had earlier. And so there was a way for influential women to exert some degree of power um, with the martyr shrines and, and by traveling to them. Indeed, Paula sets up a, in my mind, I think of it as a bit of a hostel in, in Jerusalem where these wealthy Christian pilgrim women would uh, visit and talk with each other about what shrines they were visiting. What role would you say that the women had in the preparation of the dead? Once we start seeing the development of the martyr cult as a whole, I think whatever feminine roles there may have been initially with uh, body preparation and the care of the dead uh, quickly were taken over by, especially the important dead, uh, quickly taken over by, by the men who could again, use their association with the martyrs as a way of um, asserting their control. I wonder whether this is a kind of routinization. You have a, a, something that is powerful and then slowly the coalescing of that power into established uh, mechanisms for distributing the power. I think that sounds fair. Um and, and maybe I'm going against what I had said just a minute or so ago. But one of the things that we need to remember, at least uh, as, well, I think this is true for pretty much any period, is that we shouldn't homogenize things too much. So even while power was coalescing in the hands of men and um, the martyr cult was becoming increasingly established, there were certainly people who were um, white skeptical about the martyr cult, uh, skeptical about the way that the corpses were being used. And one of those being uh, Shinude of the Red Monastery in Egypt. While I don't think he was um, against the martyr cult, he was exceptionally skeptical about the practices associated with it and whether or not people even knew 
whose bones were being venerated or whether or not they were even human. So it was even within the context of the late 4th century, the practices were were quite varied and their approach, uh, people's approach to it was was still quite varied. I think that brings us brings us full circle in a way because your opening answer to my question about what should we really know about the 4th century is how diverse it is and and how it it surprises us with the level of diversity that it that it holds. I think you're right. I think uh, while it was diverse in in many ways early in the fourth century, it becomes slightly more unified in some ways. But even within that unification, by the end of the fourth century, divisions and struggles continued. Well, I'm so thankful for your your time today to to try to let us in to a little bit of what it was like uh, in the fourth century. Um, if uh, folks are interested in reading a bit more about this, what would you recommend would be one of their first steps apart from perhaps your um, your book, Death's Dominion? Where would, where would the next step for them be? There are a number of uh, really interesting books uh, that have come out over, honestly, the last couple of decades. I think one of the great places to start is Peter Brown's relatively uh, quick read, The Cult of the Saints, Its Rise and Function in Latin Christianity. Um, which, while I disagree with him in my book a couple of times, uh, it really is the the place to start, I think, for any conversation about this. Um, Candida Moss has a number of books about Christian martyrdom and uh, in this time period, um, The Myth of Persecution. It, it's a, a lovely book and uh, well worth picking up, especially for more popular audiences. I think that's a a popular form of some of her other work, uh, and and certainly is solid scholarship. Also, Elizabeth Castelli's um, Martyrdom in Memory is a, a great work on on the way in which early Christians developed their culture, and that was tremendously influential in in my own work as well. Well, I'm so thankful for your expertise today, and I can't wait to um, share this with our listeners and have everyone think a little bit more about the way in which the ancient Mediterranean world worked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was nice for once to keep it nice and short and tight and compact. We're not at the end of an hour or only half an hour in. So we really thank you for your time and your energy to listen to this. If you would like to support the work that we do, we encourage you to hop on over to the religious studies project.com. That's our website. There you can find all sorts of links that have more information about the work that we're doing, including ways to support us financially. That includes becoming a monthly Patreon at patreon.com slash project RS, or perhaps using our affiliate links so that when you're shopping on Amazon for uh, books and toys and the latest uh, comic book or groceries that you might be able to support the podcast that you love. We certainly would appreciate it. And it doesn't take much extra effort from you. And it doesn't cost you one dime more than you were already intending to spend. Go and spend a lot and support us with your spending. We encourage you to buy books. Buy books just like the one you heard about today, Death's Dominion by Nathaniel Morehouse. All that's left to say is thanks thanks for for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. 
Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our opportunities digest by Ella Buck. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.